Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to... I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated for, from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owning me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. May God bless the reading and hearing of this word. From the Gospel according to Luke, the 14th chapter, beginning in the 25th verse. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether or not he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. 
Sometimes the gospel doesn't strike our ears as good news. Sometimes, Lord, it comes to our ears as confusing or hard or the opposite of good. Help our hearts to be able to receive your word, understanding that it is good, but sometimes before it becomes good, it's hard. To the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When we last left Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he was telling the Pharisees that when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or relatives or rich neighbors in case they may be able to invite you in return, and then you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus then tells a story about somebody who did just that. A man holds a massive banquet and sends out his slave to extend the invitation. And of course, the RSVP, the Respondo s'il vous plaît, needed to be given to the messenger in person. But as the host's best friends receive his generous request, each begins to make his own excuse. One says, you know, I've just bought a new building and I need to meet the inspector and take a look at it. Another said, well, I just bought a new tractor and I'm keen to try it out on my lawn. Third said, you know what, I just got married and, well, you know how new wives can be. I shouldn't come. So when the slave returns with all of the regrets, everybody who the host has invited has declined the generous invitation. The host says, you know what, leave here, go over to beds and invite the residents and those who are in the transitional housing programs, and then stop at the food pantry at First Baptist Church, and whoever's in line, tell them they're going to get some food to come on to the banquet, and then stop off at Windsor Place, the old railroad hotel that serves as a lodging for indigent seniors. Tell them everybody can come to my banquet. Luke leaves out what is the inevitable next piece of the story. Jesus doesn't go into detail about this explicitly. It's the part where his neighbors end up calling the police because the grand banquet tent pitched in his backyard is full of homeless, dirty, undesirable people. Clearly, he's being taken over by riffraff. It's a real bucket of undesirables. His wife is furious, and his kids are absolutely embarrassed. Sometimes doing the right thing, the generous thing, the thoughtful thing, the gospel thing results in protest by those who are closest to us. Well, you know, all of us, we have these rules, these principles of identity and norms and standards and qualities that, that define the kind of people we are. They separate us from others. They set us apart. They're our identity. They're mostly unwritten. But these standards set boundaries of what is permissible, what we think is good, what is acceptable to our family, our tribe, our people. They determine how we dress, how we speak, where we shop, our political affiliations, our circle of reasonable business associates. Jesus knew when it came down to including the forgotten, Sometimes the greatest blowback is going to be from those who are close. What are you doing, our neighbors might say. 
Why are you letting them into your house? Our family might say. Why did you spend the money helping them when you know that we could use it for this? When Jesus came to including the forgotten, he did say clearly there might be a price you will have to pay. And that price may involve very close relationships to your heart. When I was in college, a Jewish friend of mine returned from winter break and she was absolutely delighted about what had happened when she was home. Two years before she had gone home for winter break, and she brought uh, to her family her new girlfriend. She had chosen that particular holiday break to come out to her family as lesbian, and that this woman was her partner. Her parents were upset. That was, after all, the late 1970s. But in the months that had passed since then, they seemed to settle down and welcome her identity. But she wasn't sure that she was completely comfortable, that they were fully accepting of who she was. And so that first public relationship had come to an end, and this particular break, she had brought home her new love interest. It was her mother's reaction that elated her. Arriving home, she introduced her new friend, and after some polite conversation in the living room, she was summoned into the kitchen by her mother. Closing the door behind her, she said, what happened to that nice Jewish girl you used to date? <laughs> she referred to that as her Hanukkah miracle. Her mother was treating her with exactly the same identity that she treated her brother with his girlfriends. She wasn't freaking out by the fact I'm a lesbian. She was freaking out because I was maybe dating a shiksa. Jesus knew that radical ethic of inclusion was going to create the greatest problems among those kinfolk of his followers, their brothers and sisters, their children, their parents, their partners. And it is a tough rift. One chafes at our most intimate connections. It was upfront disclosure that Jesus provides. It's a warning in our gospel lesson. Whoever comes and does not hate, hard word, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What an awkward concept. Hating? Family? But it is Jesus' a stark and necessary warning about priorities. It is the same words that Jesus used in Math chapter, 20, uh, chapter 6, verse 24 in Matthew. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, said Jesus. Don't misunderstand Jesus' words. He's not saying that hating your family and being estranged from them is a virtue. No. What Jesus is saying, not that you need to be a jerk to those close to you, but if they reject you because you're doing something right and good and noble and Christ-centered, then you have to make a tough choice to be devoted to one and to hate the other. 
Jesus is saying in the competition between following Christ and any other priority in our lives, your commitment to Christ, your affection for the forgotten, the inclusion of the outcast, may be received by others as rejection of them, of their values, of their country, their comfort. You must hate me because you're a friend of them, would be the response. Picture Philemon. His slave Onesimus has fled his household and ended up assisting the Apostle Paul. By rights, Philemon could have had Onesimus arrested and branded. By branded, I mean quite literally, as he would be scarred with a hot brand on his forehead with the Latin letters F-U-G, short for fugitivus. Any slave in the Roman Empire found free with that brand on his head could immediately be seized by any citizen of Rome and turned in for a reward. Philemon also could have prosecuted the Apostle Paul for harboring Onesimus. Even though Paul is returning him to Philemon, Philemon still could have held him accountable for the months that he was with Paul thereby adding to the apostles' already lengthy prison sentence. But risking his own prosecution, Paul implores Philemon and his wife, Apria, to receive Onesimus, not as errant, wandering chattel, but as a brother, a free and full member of Philemon's household. Paul suggested that Philemon not only forfeit the financial investment he had in Onesimus, but also the domestic order of his household. Paul wrote to Aphria and Philemon, Welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul knew full well the impact of his commendation for Philemon welcoming Onesimus as a free member of his household would bring serious condemnation by the high society of Colossia. He allows Onesimus to dine at the family table and Philemon wants to bring him to our daughter's wedding reception not as a server but as an equal guest outrageous which brings us to the question of our location in this drama you may very well see yourself as a follower of Christ bearing your cross in the face of even radical rejection by your own family they think the choices you're making are because you must hate them it's not that you actually hate them but your commitment to doing what is right exceeds their priorities in your life if that's your case this morning if you have had to in order to be faithful to what you know is right create a rift between yourself and your closest family members I'm sorry it is difficult And we, as your community of faith, your family of faith, welcome you. We welcome you to this table as our brother, our sister, our child, our mom, our dad. You are our kin. 
We might, on the other hand, be that parent or that child or that sibling that has conveyed our extreme disgust at the choices, though, are close to us. How could you? Our family doesn't do that sort of thing. What will the neighbors think? You know your father won't approve. What will your mother say? Even sometimes taking the Lord's name in vain to defend what are simply our cultural conveniences. I don't think God would approve of that. Suggesting somehow that divine empowerment is giving the seal of approval on what is nothing more than our personal preference. If that is your position, or if that is occasionally, I must confess, my position, I suggest that we reconsider what we say at this table. If all are welcome to the table of the Lord, who are we to scrutinize the guest list? Do we carry the radical welcome of this occasion out into the other tables of our lives? Do we say, whosoever will may come when we are here, but not so inclusive when we're at a picnic table or a conference table or our own dinner table? More likely than not, though, we're likely to be in the position of Philemon and Aphraim confronted with the awkwardness, the judgment of others for treating someone as worthy of respect, our attention, our love. The question, what might others think, causes us to hesitate a bit, to just hold back. Imagine the cost of rebuilding our social lives. Imagine the battles that will rage when the smug ones disapprove of our chosen company. Counting the cost, the cost of inclusion, even when it's weighed against our possible exclusion. Jesus said, therefore, none of you can be my disciple if you're not willing to give it all up. May God grant us the grace to share the banquet of the kingdom of God wherever we may be. Amen.